We are live. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to To The Point. Ed Mullins, Bill Cannon. Tonight, we have a special guest, John Canzara, the president of the Chicago FOP. Um, as everyone knows, Chicago has been a city that's been under siege for quite a while. Uh, the police out in Chicago have uh, been dealing in some pretty excruciating times on the oh, Lightfoot, as oh. you can see. Um, we intend to, you know, highlight a lot of the issues that have been taking place. And John, um, I almost wanted to congratulate, or I hope you congratulated us, because we thought we were coming out with number one in shootings in the city this week, but you beat us again by three more shootings. Um, I do think New York's going to surpass you in a matter of time. Uh, murder rate in Chicago has been skyrocketing. Uh, you've taken 8,000 guns off the streets of Chicago almost yearly. And I, I don't think there's anybody better can speak as to what's taking place representing the cops of Chicago than you. How is it that 8,000 guns continue to appear on the streets of Chicago? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. You know, the, the wild part of that is 8,000 is the average. Last year, it was over 10,000 weapons alone and an increase of homicides of over 50 percent. And we still took 10,000 guns off the street. And again, more officers were shot in the line of duty than unarmed black people, as they like to say repeatedly, or unarmed any race people uh, or any offender whatsoever. More officers were shot last year than citizens. So, I mean, this city is absolutely in the wrong direction and it's on a crash course to, I keep saying it, Detroit circa 1990. Your murder age, Chicago, is December 2020. It recorded 774 murders. There's an increase of more than 50%. You had 506 murders in 2019. Why is it that this is a continuous problem? I mean, I think I see where it's going, you know, between the policies that are in place. We're experiencing this here in the NYPD. Uh, you seem to be experiencing, you know, bad policies and a hands-off type mentality. Am I right about that? What, what's taking place? Why is that happening? Well, you know, last year we had 21 homicides in one day. I mean, just contemplate that last July. Um, pretty insane. And, and consistently, Chicago has outranked New York and L.A. combined in shootings and homicides. It, it, there's something different in the water here. I don't know what it is. The leadership is absolutely lost at sea. Uh, you know, this whole racism conversation, everything's got to be white, black or brown. You know, I, I did a radio conversation a couple days ago where they were it was called What's in it for the black person? Um, and the irony is they're talking about the fact that blacks cannot be racist. Well, I, I disagree. And he said because they don't have the power. Well, in Chicago, I know it's a little different in New York, but specifically to Chicago, the mayor is black. The superintendent is black. The head of the civilian oversight agency is black. The head of the Cook County Board president is black. The chief judge at 26th in California is black. So they hold all the positions of power, yet the violence persists on record pace even ahead of last year, this year. It's up 30% this year from even last year's increase. Um, until they start getting serious about what matters and quit pandering to squeaky voices, this isn't going to change. I mean, and we have two more years. Let me ask you something. How with the all the craziness with the crime, and we experienced it in New York City also in the 80s and the early 90s, how do the cops get motivated at all to do their job when they're clearly not backed by the politicians and the and the government, how do you how do you get the cops to go out every day and do their job? You know, and it's getting harder and harder. The reality is, this department has gotten very young in the last 
five to seven years. I mean, big time. The, the, most of the veteran officers were hired in the caps push under the Clinton era way back in the early and mid nineties, like I was. So they're all on their way out. The, the, the majority of 40% of this department has less than nine years on the job. Um, that's a big number. And, you know, they are being trained. I don't want to say program because I respect them, but you know, the department absolutely has made a push to focus on them and get the activity out of them. It's hard for new cops to turn it off. They, you know, they, they come to work and they want to be the police. They want to do best. They don't know the repercussions of what can happen even worse now than ever before. I mean, veteran officers like myself, we've seen this for a long time. It's gotten progressively worse, but they have nothing to compare it to. We do. We know better. You know, proactive policing is dead. And it's not because the police don't want to do proactive policing. It's because the politicians have made it criminal behavior by the police to do proactive policing. I thought this was a little cute, a cute little slide here. Yeah, good luck if we're going to see any of them show up. <laughs> good luck for that. You know, you, you talk about, you know, the younger cops doing a job and, you know, being a little bit more. Uh, inclined to race out there to do the job, but yet the guns are still out there, the homicides are still increasing, the shootings are still increasing. So in essence, they're not really achieving the goal. So, you know, that being said, there's something else in the mix. And I, I just want to read a statement to you and get your thoughts, but it's um, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's statement on police and crime. She said, we've got to treat the homicide rate as a public health crisis. We've got to institute real measures to bring investment and economic development to these neighborhoods. We've got to treat black and brown folks like, stop treating black and brown folks like they're expendable. And militarized response to this violence isn't what people want. And more to the point, it's not effective. Now, you just highlighted the leadership of Chicago is predominantly African-American. And she's making a statement that we've got to stop treating black and brown folks like they're expendable. Uh, it sounds to me like they're in charge. And how is this possible? What are your thoughts, John? You know, the sad reality is they've been expendable for decades now. Politicians in this city have been so corrupt, it's beyond disgusting that they point the fingers at Chicago police more than anything. Uh, I can't even tell you how many city aldermen we have had gone to prison, a couple of governors. I mean, this state is as rotten to the core as can possibly be. But they don't care. They make it these empty promises they show up at, you know, these neighborhood barbecues and look these people in the face, tell them it's going to be different, but nothing is ever different. All they want is their votes to get reelected, to maintain power, to take care of their friends and Buffalo, the average person. And I feel sorry. I've said this many times to even the superintendent. The problem is our officers deal with these neighborhoods and these living conditions, 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes on a daily basis. That's bad enough. That's traumatizing long term. But think about the people who live in these neighborhoods for decades and are subjected to that same violence. And I'm not talking the bad apples in the neighborhoods, the criminals. I'm talking the actual good people who just want a safe neighborhood for their kids and just peace and quiet. And they can't have it. They're prisoners within their own homes far too many times. Why, the, why are people still voting for them? No, knowing that, you're talking about people that live in there for decades. You know, they, they go to the barbecue, probably promise them some type of a, a minute, you know, campaign promise. But... Overall, like you're living in a neighborhood for decades, you're seeing the violence on a regular basis. Why would you still be voting for them? You know, the irony is we, we just had an election last November and our state's attorney, another African-American female who is about as bad as they get, um, was reelected 
handily. I mean, not not it wasn't a landslide, but it was pretty handily. The reality is, if you do an overlay of her vote support and the most violent neighborhoods in this city, it's pretty damn close to identical. It's sad. They have the buffalo. They have this whole, you know, city buffaloed. That the police are the problem. They're the boogeyman. Look over there. Don't look anywhere else. And the same can be said for the teachers union. They're part of the problem. They like to vilify the police department too. But yet we have one of the worst school systems that keeps losing more and more students, but they get more and more funding and screaming defund the police. I, I agree. Mean, it, it's upside down. It's it's disgusting. But you know the, the control is really in the hands of the people, and yet the people are not making a change. So you have to wonder what's the the, the missing link to this here. How how is that happening, Bill? Your thoughts. Well, you know, Ed, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the left always likes to say, we looked at the science and the numbers and the science and the numbers told us this. But guess what? We could use the same rationale. We looked at the science and the numbers. And guess what? Proactive policing and broken windows policing works. It worked in New York City. It transformed the entire United States, not just New York City, because New York City crime rate was so large that it accounted for half of the damn FBI index of the seven major crimes. So we know, scientifically, we know that broken windows policing works. Then why are we going away from it? It only works if the media tells a real story. See, if we cured cancer right now and they don't publish it, then there is no cure for cancer. Yeah. So right. if the media is not telling the story, then what we're doing is we're continuing to leave people who live in poverty in tough neighborhoods, you know, and, and it's predominantly right now people of color. We continue to leave them for decades, as you're describing, John, in situations where they have no way out. And we need to blame someone. So what do we do? Blame the people well, most visible. Well, I mean, specific to broken windows, it's not something that we weren't doing a decade or two ago ourselves on some smaller levels. But the reality is, you know, the cries from the other side is you can't burden these people with petty arrests that ruin their opportunities going forward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whether it's for misdemeanors, drug offenses, whatever the case may be. Well, I say the solution isn't to throw out all the criminals altogether and make it easier for everybody to not have a record. How about making it easier to get minor offenses expunged from criminal records for people who actually turn their life around and stop having criminal behavior? Give them the opportunity to have a clean record so they can have a fruitful life. But to say we're not going to lock up anybody, I mean, there was a really ironic thing that happened the other night, last week at the White Sox baseball game. Some knucklehead jumps on the field. He gets arrested for trespassing. He goes to bond court. The judge gives him a $5,000 D-bond, which means he had to come up with $500. But three other people in that same court were there for felony uh, gun possession, and they all walked out with a signature bond and an ankle monitor. You gave a trespasser on a baseball field a higher bond than a gun offender. I mean, it, it, you can't write this stuff. It's ridiculous. And and the pushback from the people of Chicago, I mean, are you sensing any type of pushback, any type of disgust of what's occurring? Like in New York City, people are leaving. People are actually moving out of the city. Oh, I, we're losing residents left and right. You know, Illinois just lost, I was told, another uh, seat in Congress from the census numbers. But as Chicago specifically, that's why CPS is losing record numbers of students. People are fed up. But the sad reality is I think people are looking for a true leader to step up and do the right thing. I don't know what happens in two years, but uh, change has to come big time. Uh, you know, we, we just don't seem committed 
to addressing the root cause of a lot of these issues. And, and I'm not even pretending to know all the answers, but all I know is there is something profoundly different in Chicago than any other major city in this country when we have the violent level that we do more than the number one and two city combined. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable to think of. And it's been that way for years. It's not, it has. you know, it, it, it seems that each change in leadership brings on a deeper commitment to crime. It just continues to get worse. John, you had a seven-year-old child that was shot by in a Happy Meal. Tell us the story about that. Well, again, and here's another story of, and I know people don't like to say this. Yeah, you're showing the dirtbag right now who had no conscience whatsoever firing her into a car. I don't care whether he knew she was in the car or not. That's irrelevant. He walked up to a car in a drive-thru and just started firing rounds uh, with an AK-47. Uh, the sad reality is the, the father of that child was, I, I'm not saying that she deserved it because of what her dad did, but, you know, in the streets, they call it, he was hot. He was a wanted guy. He was causing trouble. He was challenging people. And you know you're going to get a response, and you're out driving around with your daughter. I mean, it's just irresponsible behavior for a parent to live that kind of lifestyle and then drag a poor, innocent child into it. You know, there, there's troubling video that I've seen of the officers who responded to that scene didn't even wait for an ambulance. They picked her up, they carried her into a squad car, and they drove her to the hospital about a mile away. And you could actually see the officers running into the hospital, carrying her poor, lifeless body. That's a, that's a, an image that that officer's never going to get out of his head and have mm -hmm. to live with. And he did nothing wrong. But again, the trauma of this job, nobody ever takes into consideration the cumulative effects that our members deal with on a daily basis, trying to save lives. John, uh, you, you, we just saw the photo of the shooter in that case. Generally, the media posts some type of graduation photo or some story about a wannabe athlete. Um, what is this young man's background? A college graduate working? What's his background? Well, actually, he was out on, uh, he had two, he has two existing cases that are still open, one juvenile, one adult. Uh, even the day they were following him um, on the expressway, it ended up into a little shootout where he crashed the vehicle he was driving during rush hour traffic. He then tried to carjack a family, shot into that car, uh, grazing the driver, uh, injuring him. Uh, the, the police who were tailing him at the time returned fire and wounded him uh, and yeah. And basically what we he have, another individual that doesn't belong on the streets. There's story after story after story. And that falls right on the county, the county state's attorney and the chief judge at the, at the criminal courts building. You know, I highlighted the trespassing thing at the White Sox baseball game. That is a caveat from the chief judge of what they're going to do as far as bond court is concerned. They have made a conscious decision that they are not, unless someone gets shot, they are not going to hold anybody on a bond just for possessing an illegal gun. They're just going to give them an I bond, make sure they show up to court and give them an A commander. Um, th that's just a pattern. I, I got to ask you about two proposals that are running around Mayor Lightfoot's brain. Is, oh, yeah. Funny you use the word running because I know where you're going. With <laughs> <laughs> is, well, I'll get to that one next. But this one here, she wants to end no knock warrants and military style raids and restrict the flow of military gear to police departments. And they're even calling for police to be standing in the back of large events like concerts and letting people police it themselves where law enforcement should hand out water unless they're needed. What do you have to say about that? Well, I, I would say, why don't she start with her detail? Why doesn't she give up her detail? Every time there's even a small threat of a protest that's gonna come near her house, 
she rallies, she rallies the troops and has 100 to 200 officers protecting her whole block, shutting it down on lockdown. Um, so she's kind of a hypocrite on that nature. But uh, it, she also brought in the National Guard. Well, well, you know, they didn't want to bring the National Guard a year ago when the riots started, May 29th. Um, they, they dragged her feet for weeks and then finally brought in, I think it was about 120 when the riots were really at its peak. But specific to the, uh, the conversation about no-knock warrants, you know, they were also talking about making a certain time frame. No, no warrants after 8 p.m. or some nonsense like that between or 8 and 6 or whatever it was. So, you know, you could do all the criminal activity you want after sun goes down and don't worry about it because the police are never going to come knocking down your door. I mean, it's just stupid. You should well, have to make an appointment, you know, with the bad guy to do the warrant, you know. Worse than coming to knock down your door, we'll, we'll get into the shooting, which is pretty recent, um, where Adam Toledo, 2.30 a.m., I, I believe, right? The officer's name was Toledo, uh, Chase. No, me. no, no. The victim, the, the offender's name was Toledo. Okay. Well, he's being chased by the officer. Correct. He does have a firearm. Correct. And the shot is fired or several shots are fired. And... Her response was, I refuse to treat this as just business as usual, may have said a news conference. And she is now contemplating asking for supervisors approval on a foot pursuit. I, how do we operate like this as law enforcement? Do we wait? There goes the, the purse snatch and we, we need to wait to see if we chase. I mean, this is insanity. What's occurring. I really can't believe she was that dumb to say that, to be honest with you. But I've never met her, but my initial reaction is she's pretty stupid. Well, she's certainly, I mean, you know, education-wise, she's not stupid. I mean, she's a highly educated woman who is a, a well-paid attorney. But when it comes to common sense and, and law enforcement, you're right. I, it's, she is pretty stupid. She has no idea what she's talking about. But to think you're going to sit there and ask a sergeant, you know, I got this offender. I think he's wanted for a homicide. Yeah. Oh, never mind. He's already gone. You know, the irony, and Ed can relate to this part of it, is that same mayor is calling for me to be fired from the police department, uh, which wouldn't affect my position at the union hall, uh, because I don't need to be the police to, to be the president of this union. My term will maintain for the next two years, no matter what. But that being said, we have law, labor law rulings that say members at the lodge cannot be disciplined while they're on a leave of duty, but they're still trying to do that because they don't like to be challenged on the ridiculous things that they have no idea what they're talking about. But one of the things that my police board case entails is an allegation that I was calling in 2017 for officers to not chase offenders. Exactly what they're saying to do now is one of the reasons they're trying to fire me now. I mean, it's it's crazy world. I mean, it's really upside down. And well, all I said was officers have no obligation to run after any offender. They have an obligation to give a description, a, a flight of path, uh, and that's it. You know, you make a good effort. You walk after the person, they run away. Great. Because officers get hurt. The city doesn't cover them for injuries on duties. They got to fight for that. It's one problem after another. And not to mention the discipline from our civilian oversight specifically has gotten so ridiculous that it's not even worth doing proactive police work if you can help it. On the issue of them trying to terminate you, uh, I, I understand where it's going, but I do think the bigger picture is them trying to silence you. I think that, you know, and I have some friends that are actually in your department who speak very highly of you. They think you're very proactive, that you're defending the cops, and that you do speak the truth about what's occurring. That being said, 
Um, you certainly have to be causing an impact to the elected officials by exposing what's occurring. Now, I too am an experience in being silenced here in the NYPD. I, I have done many things to challenge the mayor, challenge the city council, and just this week, uh, charges were filed against me. So what I see happening is uh, almost uh, an epidemic of trying to take out union presidents as part of this mantra to um, take out police. And, you know, New York, huge city, Chicago, a huge city, two notoriety cities for what's occurring, two cities that have total incompetent mayors, and what better place to take a stand and generate an issue that sends a message to the rest of the country. What are your thoughts on that, John? Well, I, again, I, it, it makes no difference to me. I've said this from day one. I, you know, we, We're coming up June 30th, four years without a contract. It'll be expired. Um, and they have done nothing to really negotiate any successor agreement. They've dragged their feet. I mean, just till today, we gave them several dates about six days ago and couldn't even get a response on what dates were acceptable or not. But um, I, I challenged the city when they first filed the charges for me to be fired from the police department. Okay, you want me gone? I will, I will resign from the police department effective immediately if you give my members the contract they deserve. I challenged them from day one. I'll give them what they want. Give my members the fair contract. It, that job matters not to me. I will never be in uniform again except for maybe a memorial. That's about it. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm here to fight. I'm here to speak on behalf of our 18,000 members. And I'll be damned if any politician is going to silence me because this voice has been silent far too long at the FOP um, and in Chicago. They've rode coattails of politicians forever. No more. Well, the country needs a lot more voice that, that you have, the voice I have. I'd like to see a lot of unions across the country get more vocal. And it's not happening. I've been doing this a long time. And I can probably count on one hand um, some real union presidents that were vocal and made an impact. And and you all making an impact. Again, I, I reiterate from the people I spoke to um, that you're making an impact out there and you can see where they're going with it. Um, the shooting that occurred in the Toledo shooting. Is it just me or is the microphone scratchy? I don't know. How are you hearing me, Bill? I'm hearing you all right. All right. Never mind. It's my phone then. Go ahead. All right. We'll get you a new one for Christmas. <laughs> That's his Chicago phone there. <laughs> it, it's probably a wiretap. <laughs> That's right. They're trying to listen in. On a Toledo shooting, the nation is watching this shooting on the heels of the Floyd case. And we see a police officer in a foot pursuit. Um, you know, the, the segment of the video gets broken down. We do see a firearm. Um, and now everyone is guessing whether... He had dropped the firearm as he was putting his hands up. I mean, this is what's occurring. No one's ever really spoken on the side of the officer involved to get what is probably the truth out there. Um, what do you have to say about that shooting? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 my heart still goes out to that officer. He, he's still struggling from that decision he had to make. Um, you know, I, I hope we can get him through it and he, he returns to duty one day. But I don't know that that's a given he's that shaken up by it. And it's not because he did something wrong. It's because of the age of the kid, you know? Yeah, he was an offender. Yeah, he was a gangbanger. And, you know, the mayor refuses to talk about the Latin Kings and the fact that he was a gangbanger. Like, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. The kid he was with was a gangbanger, is a gangbanger, was shooting at cars, trying to kill somebody in a passing vehicle. But that's overlooked. Nobody wants to talk about that. Um, I, 
I, I don't know when this stops or how this stops, but all I know is our officers are going to be supported vocally, you know, actually physically, we'll be there any way we can emotionally for our members. And, and my goal as the leader of this organization is to make sure that the officer's narrative gets out as accurately as I can state it and let people try and look at it from a, a different perspective than the media is going to spin it the second they get the story. Every single time that a video is coming out, I am going to tell you the officer's narrative on what they were doing at the time they were doing it. And it kind of worked really well with this shooting because I know what they were going to do. That The last still they were going to show is right before the trigger's pulled and his hands are up. That's just, I mean, they do it almost by habit because they don't like to show the actual shooting. But that was going to be a very negative view for many people who saw that. So I knew there was a major need to explain how we got to that. And the 95 or 100 seconds before that were almost as critical, if not more critical, than what you saw at the end of it. Um, and th the reality is eight-tenths of a second is less time than it would take for me to slap you in the face if I was standing in front of you and you wouldn't be able to block it. As a matter of fact, after I slapped you, your hand would probably come up after the fact. That's how much reaction time that officer had to make that decision. And he only fired one shot. That is amazing trigger control because I guarantee you, 99 out of 100 officers would have put at least two shots, if not more, on the target. And he, you know, that's just the reality of it. But he was in such slow motion dissecting what was going on. By the time he squeezed the trigger the first time, he realized the gun wasn't in his hand. There was no need. He immediately reholstered and started rendering aid. I don't know how much more perfect of a response officers can do than what Officer Stillman did in that moment. Totally agree with you. And just as a point of information, I, I think it was either 79 or 1980, NYPD officer by the name of McConnell was killed in a bank robbery by a perp who had put his hands up, just like the old West, put his hands up, but he had a gun in, in his hand. And all he did was move it forward, fire the shot, caught him right between the, the eyes and killed him. So just because you're putting your hands up does not mean there is no threat, especially when you have a firearm and the knowledge that the officer had going into this was that there was shots fired previously. What I do find interesting, and it's not out there publicly, is that Toledo's mom had no idea where he was. He ran away. She called the police, but she never reported that he was back home. Then he ran away again that night. Three days went by before she realized it was her son that was killed and laying in a morgue. No one's talked about that. So, you know, we have a mom whose son is missing for three days and no reaction, no story. What we you know, turn it a in lot, a, police a, lot of, a lot of people want to want me specifically to go after the mom. I'm kind of hesitant to do that because I, I can tell you, I worked inside high school for almost four years and I tragically saw a lot of moms just lost with, with boys specifically similar to him, just will not listen, will not do anything. And I'm not even saying that she was trying to do everything. I don't know. So I'm not going to pretend to know. But I do know a lot of them feel lost on what to do and how to control adolescent boys going through that time frame. The, you want to talk about resources. The city talks about, and this is the goofy reality of how this city operates. We spend over a million dollars a year on legal defense for people in this country illegally, rather than taking that million dollars and using it to fund maybe boot camps or something to give these kids a little more structure and authority and try and stop them 
before they get, you know, hanging out with 21-year-olds who are going to use them because they know a juvenile gun offender is going to get nothing as far as time if they get caught with a gun, which was why Toledo ended up with a gun to begin with. But it's a never-ending cycle. So I don't know the backstory to the mother other than the fact that this was a constant issue she had with him. Um, I, I'm not going to judge her mothering skills. Enough people have done it. I don't think that's my place to do. But uh, she's certainly not alone in that endeavor. But until we start getting real on gang enforcement, we're going to have another tragedy. Bill, you know, John, just from an investigative standpoint, it seems like a lot of these politicians are trying to take away a lot of even the investigative tools that departments use to track gangs. You know, for example, building those whole Database. gang boards up and tracking who's in these gangs. They don't even want you to do that. That That's an investigative way to see what's the gang hierarchy, who's in the gangs, what colors are they using, what what is their, uh, you know, their tags out on the street, all of those things. And they're looking to take even those tools away from investigators that are highly effective. You know, Ed, you, you talked about, uh, you know, Hands up and how deadly anybody can be at any time. We just had an incident probably two weeks prior to that where a shoplifter was confronted out in the parking lot of a Home Depot. And the security guard who was trying to detain him ended up getting shot in the head because the offender reached behind him and shot behind him and happened to clip the security guard. And he's tragically probably, you know, going to be catastrophically brain damaged for the rest of his life if he even ever comes out of it. You know, and then he, it turned into a foot pursuit couple blocks at least before the police finally quartered him in a backyard. He shot another officer. It grazed the back of his neck. Luckily, he survived and, and is okay uh, before he was taken out himself. But to sit here and say that just because someone's got a gun and running away from you, they're not a threat, It takes you could literally shoot backwards as you're running, swinging the gun with your hand. You could fire shots backwards. I had a, my class commander in the academy was Brian Strauss. Brian Strauss was killed in an alley by a Latin gangbanger at 2 o'clock in the morning, June 30th, 2001. We're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of Brian's death. Um, just a couple lucky shots down the alley. One gets him in the vest. The other one gets him in the face. Um, and he's dead right there. So this, And it was a 16-year-old offender. So I'm so sick of hearing that 16-year-olds, 13-year-olds, oh, my God, you have to do something different because of their age. Guns don't ask for IDs when the trigger's pulled. They just fire. And these kids are left to roam the streets, run around with gangbangers. They become hardened at 13, 14, 15 years old, and they commit violent acts. And what most of the public doesn't realize is that when they are arrested, you know, they may have two collars. Those are the collars we caught them for. How many did they do that we didn't catch them for? So the truth is not even revealed just by saying, well, he's had two arrests. Uh, he might have done 30 robberies. We only caught him for two. And, and a lot of it is missing from it overall. Unfortunately, it's the climate that we deal with. And, you know, the softer touch on crime is putting police and the public in jeopardy. I, I'm actually going to start rolling out a weekly um, request for a chief to on patrol and start answering jobs with a sector car. Um, they're so quick to critique what's going on in the field but they're not out there doing it themselves. Why don't they ride with an officer on patrol or an elected official get in the car and ride out? They don't understand what you just described, that you could be chasing a person and a firearm could just come over a shoulder and let go of a round. They may get lucky. They may just hit the cop chasing them. And people do not understand that. They watch too much TV and it comes from a different direction. And you, I'm sure you've seen this throughout the years too, Bill. 
No, 100%. And I mean, I, I don't know if you recently you saw the video today of a crime scene cop doing his job and some mutt comes up behind him with a pipe and swings it and hits yeah. him right in the back of the neck. Yes. I mean, that's what's out on the street right now. We, and we, they're we emboldened have, to do that to a cop. We had, we had, a, we had an uh, evidence technician killed several years ago. Michael Flisk was processing a stolen car in a garage. Um, and the offender, fearful that his fingerprint would be found, came up behind him and executed him in the garage while he was processing the scene. Um, so they, they have no fear. They really don't. I mean, the, the riots last year only gave them even more machismo to do whatever they want because they ran roughshod over every section of this city and there was no order for zero tolerance. None. You know, John, when I watched the Chicago guys guarding that Columbus statue and they were actually firing munitions at them. I was like, why are they there? If they're not allowed to defend themselves or lock people up, what are they doing there? Ed, they were allowed to fire. They should have shot somebody. Uh, you have no, I mean, you could, you know, one of our sergeants is probably never going to be a hundred percent vision in the one eye that he got struck with. Um, he's never going to have a hundred percent vision in that eye. And he blew out a knee in the same process. You, you're literally getting shot with fireworks from all different directions, and they somehow kept their composure and never fired a shot at any of the crop that was attacking them with deadly weapons, frozen bottles of water. I, you know, the, the re reality is our mayor said less than two weeks prior to that assault on that statue that that statue wasn't coming down. And then she let 51 officers get hurt and then, like a coward, took that statue down a week later and gave in. If I recall, you mobilized some cops to stand to defend that statue from coming down. Well, I, I, I tried to mobilize the Italian community, too. Unfortunately, uh, the leaders within the Italian community even caved in, too, They, along with some of our Italian leaders in, in the city council. They had a meeting, and they decided it wasn't worth the risk of officers getting hurt. And I told them point blank that afternoon, that's bullshit. I'm speaking on behalf of my members, and I can tell you, my members had enough of this BS with the mob ruling this city. They are willing to defend that statue every day if they have to, just to prove a point. And they said two hours later when they called me back, we're going to tell her it's okay. We're going to give her the green light. And I said, shame on every single one of you. So I tried to get as many people out there to try and block. I knew if we had enough people that the city wouldn't take the statue down because we would we would make sure they, they wouldn't be able to. But, you know, not enough people showed up in time for that to happen. You just proved the point of what I've been saying all day long is that the silent majority is so silent that the mob is taking control. I mean, this, this is what occurred in Nazi Germany years ago. People just sat back and let it happen. And the next thing we had six million Jews that were killed. I mean, where do we draw a line with what's occurring for the American people to get involved and start to protect their own cities and, you know, change this narrative that's taking place. Well, I think that's where being outspoken matters. People need to see leaders not afraid to call balls and strikes. And it's real easy in my chair, to be quite honest with you, to do the things I do because I have the truth on my side and facts matter. Facts will always override emotion if you articulate them properly. The people can, we have two of the biggest race baiting idiots in the country in, I mean, I'm not going to mention their names. Everybody knows who they are. But literally, we had a, a rally against Kim Fox two years ago. And these two idiots crashed our rally as a counter protest. And they were screaming and yelling at anybody and everybody. 
And I took them on, and within three minutes, they were both walking away the other way. They had to go find somebody else to scream at because I will fire fact after fact after fact. And the reality is we're on the right side of law. They are not. That's correct. And, you know, as a point of fact, um, the we had an outside monitor. Peter Zimmeroth was appointed by a federal judge here to monitor the NYPD after the stop or frisk issue. He had asked me a question of what I thought the minority community thought about the police in their community. And I said, I think they feel that we're an occupying army. And his answer was, what would you say if I told you that 85% of the community wanted you in their communities, that they like the police and they want more police? And I was shocked. When, and I, at this point, I had over 35 years of service in the NYPD, 30 years of service. But I was shocked to see that a poll actually came back with that type of support. But it made me feel good. And it made you feel that what you're doing mattered. And for the cops in the street, it mattered. And that's the fact. And that's exactly what you're talking about, that people don't bring this out. The news media never publishes this, never comes out. But at the end of the day, it's us who are out there defending these communities. And if we do hit them with the facts and we do address the issues, um, the quick answer is you're a racist. And it's simply not true. <laughs> facts are just not there. It's not true. But that's what they lay on you when, when this happens. And you can't give up. I agree with you. You had an officer, Julius Gibbons, left the FOP after publishing an open letter um, to hear the cry of the people we serve and ignore as a crime against humanity. Um, what was his cry and why does he believe he was being ignored? Well, you know, he didn't even have one year on the job when he left the union and decided to go out on his own. We have two Chicago police officers who don't belong to the FOP. That's great. Nobody has to. It's their choice. Um, there's repercussions and there's expectations if you're going to need help. Uh, in a long career, if you plan on doing this long term. But again, you know, the, we realized even coming into the election last year that the FOP did not do a very good job at diversity, even from within. So it's definitely been something that we've been working on uh, and committed to changing, but it's not a reset button. Some people think it's as simple as, okay, great, you're in, now change it. It, it has to change over time, slowly from within. We are making the necessary changes to make that a reality. Um, but unfortunately, some people are a little impatient. They, they want immediate change. They think that I'm not speaking for the African-American officers. Well, I could tell you, I, I don't know that anybody in the FOP, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but I know firsthand what the FOP quite frequently did. And it was their friends first, and then everybody else second. I mean, actually third, because it was themselves first, their friends second, nobody else third. We flipped that script totally upside down. We treat everybody exactly the same. We give everybody 100% effort all day, every day, and whatever's left for ourselves, so be it, if anything. I'm not worried about myself. I've been fighting this city and this department for the last 17 of my 26 years. I mean, they tried to fire me in 2008 or for the first time over nonsense. I'm okay with that. I mean, I, but, you know, sadly, for years, I felt like I was just screaming at a wall, calling out the hypocrisy. But now I have a stage, I have a microphone, and I'm going to make a goddamn difference and stick up for our members and let the city know they're not going to keep doing whatever they want to do. The same old, same old is not going to keep going forward. And that for every single officer we have. Uh, you know, one of the things we did, and it talks about the silent majority specifically. We have a minister here, uh, Willie, Dr. Willie Wilson. 
He ran for Senate uh, in his last cycle. But Dr. Wilson's been around a long time. He's an old sharecropper from the South, self-made man. He was a janitor at McDonald's. And then he ended up parlaying and it's owning a few McDonald's to where now he has a medical supply company and is seven multimillionaire, just a great human being who wants to do right by his community. I don't have no, we, we reached out to Dr. Wilson very early and tried to facilitate some community outreach. So what we did was we started having through Dr. Wilson, him bring in ministers from all over the city to address the FOP. The first time we had a sit down, we had about 18 ministers. The second time, I think it was about 19 or 20. The third time we had a sit down, right before COVID really exploded the second time, we had 72 ministers in our, in our union hall. And all we did was explain who we are as people, what we do as a union, and what we do as police officers. And I can tell you, every single time we did that, nobody left that union hall with a negative uh, perception of the union or the police department anymore. Whatever doubts they had were cleared up or explained. They might have not loved us, but they certainly didn't hate us at that point. And I know we got to keep doing that to change the hearts and minds that are going to matter the next election cycle to get these politicians who promise the sky and deliver the dirt out of office once and for all. I've been doing that a little bit differently, but the impact is tremendous. I've been going to a lot of the churches, speaking with a lot of the reverends in the churches, and um, the truth is that they they love the police. The community wants the police there. Um, they do understand what's taking place. They have some concerns that we talk about, but it's very important because you develop a relationship that actually gives our officers a voice. And it, I found it to be very helpful. And, and I'm glad that that's working with you also. Um, it, it, we, we just don't do enough of it. I mean, this, this happy dance stuff that we're doing here in the NYPD is fake. I never understood how we get the photo of the lady crossing the street. Like, do we bring her back and have someone get the camera? Like, how does this happen? But this is what we're posting all the time. And it's just not genuine. No, it's the day-to-day interactions that nobody sees that are going to make the difference here. You know, it's just being, and this is where I think our responsibilities lie as union officials um, is to get our membership to be a little more human, a little more humble and use a little more discretion. You know, we don't have to always go hard at everybody because not even a criminal's always not a piece of shit. That's just, I mean, it's there true. are plenty right. of them out there, but right. every criminal is not a bad person. You just ran not, into a bad problem in life. Right. right. I mean, I, I've certainly made my uh, share of mistakes growing up and I'll own them, but that certainly doesn't make me a bad person any more than it does. And people, please just need to realize that, you know, people, pe- people make mistakes sometimes. They struggle. Sure. You know, John, when you talk about, and we all we ever hear about everywhere is police reform. So if you had to choose some reforms, and it's, there are unnecessary reforms, what reforms do you think the Chicago police need? Well, I mean, I, I've said it from day one. So when the, the federal government was here under Obama and the they were doing interviews, you know, the FOP had facilitated a meeting with the lawyers from the Department of Justice, and they had roundtable, town hall discussions, whatever you want to call them. And at one of them, I asked if we could have some private conversations. I ended up having lunch with four different Department of Justice lawyers over four and a half hours, telling them what I thought was wrong with Chicago Police Department. And a lot of it is accountability within the higher ranks. There is zero accountability. You know, one of my other charges for being fired is because I tried to hold my superintendent accountable for a rally that shut down an interstate expressway in the middle of Chicago he was in support of this, and he let a priest and, and Jesse Jackson Sr. 
shut down an expressway on a Saturday afternoon, and he participated in the march that shut down that expressway in violation of state law and federal law. And because I tried to hold him accountable, I got I got accused of filing a false police report. But that isn't anything new. And, and, and they try and spin it because he was a black superintendent, and here you go with the race nonsense. But in 2008, in, in 2009, I filed a complaint against a white superintendent that nobody did anything about. about he was found in contempt of court federal court two times for not turning over information during a lawsuit that he refused to turn over. And the judge found him in contempt of court and nobody wanted to do a damn thing about it. Uh, so accountability is huge. Training is just about as huge. You know, I don't know about New York, but specifically- Yeah, but you know, John, we John, we say that training is, is great, but it's bullshit because they don't mean it. When they say, oh, the police need more training, training costs money. And training takes the police off the road. So when politicians say training, they do not mean it. They, they really don't train don't. us. They don't train us. They well, they mean it. They're just not committed to it. I mean, I I think they mean it, but they just don't want to do what it's going to take. I think you're. I agree. I think that there's an answer to it. That they they believe that training is the answer, but they won't commit to it because we don't get the training. And police officers have no problem doing the training. They actually embrace the training, but we're not getting it. And I think it, 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 that's a big problem. Well, man, right. you, I mean, you mentioned that for the the Brooklyn Bridge, where they said the uh, the the uh, DOI and the state attorney general filed a hit job on the NYPD's response to the riots at the Brooklyn Bridge, and they said the big recommendation was training. Has anyone gotten any training since the summer? So when NATO was in Chicago in 2012 or whatever it was, um, you know. A lot of officers, and they even categorized them by size. Obviously, you wanted the bigger officers in the front, but they all had their riot turtle gear. They were all trained in crowd control. It stopped after NATO left. Nobody was trained. And it showed the inspector general here absolutely eviscerated the mayor. And, you know, the ironic part is May 29th was a couple days after the George Floyd incident up in Minneapolis. And those two race-baiting fools I talked about here were up in Minneapolis causing havoc. And it was the only meeting I had with the mayor. That was three weeks after I took office. And I sat down with her and I said, what are you going to do when them two idiots come down here and start that crap down here? She literally went on a tirade. That's not effing happened here. They're not burning my effing buildings. I mean, I'll give her credit. She let her guard down and was literally dropping F-bomb after F-bomb, but assured me there was no way that was coming to Chicago. Later that night, the riot started. They had no solutions. Saturday night, I'm downtown Chicago in a police station listening to radio call after radio call of officer screaming for help. 10-1, we need help. We're being attacked. And nothing. There was no response. And it was disgusting that they left our members out there to dry with nothing to do. But that's just poor leadership 100% across the board, top to bottom. John, you mentioned a little bit back, you know, you made your mistakes. Um, you know, we've all made mistakes. You've come under some criticism, um, you know, for past complaints and discipline. Um, you know, the department, I'm guessing, is coming at you like mine has come at me. You, you, you want to clear the air on anything? I, I mean, they, like I said, they've been coming after me for years now because I just refuse to shut up. You know, I, I, I'm not afraid of hard work. I'm not afraid of working 80 hours a day. If I got to go back to driving a truck, I'll go back to driving a truck. The last time they fired me, that's what I did for six months. I went back and drove a truck to make a paycheck until I had my hearing. So they're never going to silence me. You know, my son's an adult. My parents are both dead. There's nothing they can hang over my head anymore. I'm not afraid. 
It's um, the best place to be as a union president. It, it, it absolutely is. No any repercussions. There's nothing they can do yeah. to damage my life. And I'm going to fight like hell until I walk away from this, whenever that is. Well, as I said, your members really appreciate that. You sent a letter to President Trump asking for assistance in fighting the crime and the violence that was in the city of Chicago. What response did you get? And what was the response from your mayor when she found out you did it? Well, she was absolutely livid when that letter got sent. Uh, the reality is we, we have 50. I mean, how many uh, councilmen they have in New York? Too many. Uh, Too many. How many? Uh, in New York City Council? Yeah. Uh, it's more than 17. It's I think it's 20-something. Okay, 20. So we got 50. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're much smaller. Yeah, it's, much more, it's probably up in the 50s. Well, we, we got 50. And, again, we could probably do away with 40 of them and, and get away with 10 um, because that's about the only ones that are actually worth a grain of salt. But, uh, you know, when that, when that request came out to the White House – there was only six or four aldermen who actually piggybacked my sentiment about having the National Guard come in and supplement CPD because we were just overwhelmed number wise and hours worked. Uh, you know, one of the things that doesn't get talked about is our days off got canceled pretty quickly. They were 12 hour days nonstop. There were officers that worked 27 straight 12 hour shifts without a day off. Um, and early on that first week, uh, I think it was day five. We had an officer that actually was so exhausted, he went home uh, and he fell asleep without turning off his car. And he passed away from carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. And the city wouldn't do the right thing. They wouldn't even make it a line of duty consideration. Not at all. Um, he had, a, he had a, a, a small son and a, and a widow behind who almost, she almost died too. The son was at daycare. The wife was in an oxygen chamber for weeks before she even got right. Uh, she almost died too. Luckily, she survived. Uh, but again, the city just refuses to do the right thing. Um, again, time and time. Did you get a response from the White House? So, uh, no. Um, I, I got backdoor conversations. Let's put it that way. That's the White House. They had a lot of backdoor Correct. But the message. The well, message we, got there. I mean, the I, I got there. No there's no doubt. Um, because, you know, the mayor, uh, the, the president even referred to it at one point. Um, so I know they got it. But did I think he was going to send the National Guard? No. It was just an effort to highlight the mayor's ineffectiveness of the whole situation. And and that, you know, also, as much as I respect Superintendent Brown, I know he was only on the job a few weeks at that point, but that falls at his doorstep, too. He should have realized that we didn't have enough manpower to do what we needed to do. And we should have had at least a thousand National Guard troops up supplementing, doing the, the non-contact part of the job. Well, she's trying to demilitarize the police, but the National Guard kind of creates a conflict for her viewpoint, it appears. Uh, you had contract negotiations where you were offered a 10% raise and um, you walked out of the room. Apparently, they wanted to institute 40 disciplinary reforms. What happened? Well, the reality to that is I didn't technically walk out of the room. I did say we're wasting each other's time. No sense doing this anymore. Closed my book and we did get up to leave. We had a short conversation for about three minutes after that. So it wasn't like a big F you and I walked out, but the city and we've had some major reforms 
passed in Springfield, Illinois, through the Senate, the state legislation. And you know, thirty-six fifty-three is a nightmare of a bill that gives the keys to the criminals and absolutely handcuffs the police more. And it makes it a felony to not turn on your body cam if someone thinks you did it intentionally. You can't review your body cam before you do a report, according to that law starting July 1st. So then you can get written up for a Rule 14 lying violation because you inadvertently stated something incorrectly on a case report because you couldn't look at your body cam. They can fire you, decertify you, so you can never be the police and charge you with a Class 3 felony for that also. So the, the, the discipline protections that they have been fighting for in contract negotiations, they did a backdoor maneuver and they had the politicians down in Springfield do a lot of that for them. It made it a little bit easier if that law stands the way it is. Uh, but the 10% they offered us was exactly the same. And this is the game they played. They said they would have an offer, a package ready for us, blah, blah, blah. It took several weeks for that offer to come when in reality it was the exact same contract that the fireman just signed a couple weeks before that. So they already knew the number. It was all a big game. But the reality that they're holding hostage money that our members had already earned for the last going on four years now in exchange for things going forward. It's basically extortion. But we're not going to throw away all the discipline, the hard-fought discipline protections that we gave up other things for over the last 30, 40 years in exchange for raises or finance or for, for uh, healthcare contributions, all of that stuff came at a price. But those protections are there for a reason. We're not just going to say, okay, we're going to give you whatever you want. Um, so we're in for a fight. Well, you, you, know, you, you mentioned something about uh, if you got in trouble, they want it so that you could never get on another police department. They're trying to do that in New York now, too. Well, you know, to a degree. So one of the things we first did when I got in office, it was already in effect, but I, I think we, we definitely kind of supersized it and put it on steroids when I got elected, was we started a coalition through the, uh, the state of Illinois with the Illinois FOP, the Joint Labor Council, who represents over 500 different police departments in the state of Illinois, the State Troopers Lodge, and the Sheriff's Association and the Chiefs of Police. And this coalition was formed very simply with the understanding that everything was going to be unanimous decisions. If one person disagreed on a topic, we'd have a conversation and try and come to an agreement. If a second person disagreed, it was a no-go on to the next topic until we can have 100% agreement on whatever that case may be. So that coalition went a long way in drafting opposition language and trying to stay together and fight 3653 in Springfield as much as we can. It's still in effect today. So um, we're trying like hell. So Springfield is your state capital, so it's coming down from the state like the police reforms came down from Albany, and basically the governor Cuomo said, "Do something about this, or you're gonna you're not gonna get state funds uh, for law enforcement." Was so, that before or after he was uh, sexually? Uh, no, well, he he's a clown. That was before. Yeah, that was before. Yeah, he's gonna skate out of that though. He's too. Well, powerful. you're right. You're right because it's not a Me Too movement; it's a You Too. You know, I wonder if a cop wrote a book and used his buddies and made four, a four million advance and had his buddies help him write it on duty if they wouldn't be indicted, you know? I wonder if some of his old detail would be willing to write a book and tell the secret stories they know. Yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is that if the media told the truth about what occurred, we wouldn't be having a lot of the problems that are going on right now. Um, a lot of it gets covered up. and. and well, but it's a microcosm of what I was talking about the police department. There is no accountability 
if they don't want it to be. It's easy to point the finger in the opposite direction and say, look over there, don't look over here. They're the problem, not me. And, and far too often they have the bully pulpit and they get it, they've gotten away with it for a far too long. Um, but all good things come to an end. That's all I can say. Well, the power is always in the hands of the people. The question is, Bill, how do we get the people to react? Well, you know something? Some of these people are going to come back to New York City from their Hamptons homes and from their Connecticut homes because COVID is starting to come to an end. And they're going to see a New York City that they don't recognize. And that's all we can count on is that these people don't elect the same kind of clown that they elected for eight years. Because we got at least four, four or five clowns that are running for mayor on the Democratic ticket. And I don't think there's a single good candidate on the Democratic side. No, well, the question is we don't know who to trust. That, well, you know, Chicago's not much different. And I, and I can tell you, the, the thing I keep telling them is you, you might get reelected, but what are you going to be the boss of? You're going to be the boss of a barren town because without tax revenue from the high-end stores, from the high-end condos downtown and all that real estate, you have nothing. You have no roads. You have no bridges. You have no police department. You have no public safety. And the rest of the city is going to fall like escape from New York. Yeah, you're going to have a thousand. Yeah. They don't care. That's the We're problem. all going to be Snake Plissken pretty yeah. soon. Wait till the stock market leaves New York City. Then they're going to be like, oh, my God. Big business <laughs> is leaving. That's the tax base. And it goes exactly what John's saying is that there, there will be nothing left. I, I think it's going to take New York City 20 years to turn itself around. Really oh, it'll take all the major cities that long if it keeps going the way it's going to go. And and people are leaving. You know, residents, there was a survey of, uh, I think it was Allied Van Line survey, something like in one month, 60% outgoing moves out of the city, no incoming moves to the city of New York. And just recently, I spoke with someone else in the moving industry. All of their work has been leaving the city of New York. Uh, business people are all closing down. The city's beginning to look like a ghost town. Uh, this mayor is spending $30 million to draw tourism to the city of New York. I am receiving, as I speak, videos of police being assaulted and people having sex on the floor of Penn Station during rush hour. And this is what we're spending to bring tourists in. 27 people shot over the weekend. Um, come to New York City. We'll let you watch people have sex in the subway. Police be shot. I mean, police be beaten. And you can watch any variety of 27 shootings that occur. This is Mayor de Blasio City. It's insane what's occurring, and yet it's continuous. But it's a nationwide, this is a nationwide epidemic. This isn't even a big city epidemic at this point. You know, I've said it for a while now, the defund the police movement, you know, they realized that whole moniker fell flat on its face, but they're still getting their way because they're making law enforcement such an unattainable and unattractive job that nobody wants it everybody's leaving as quickly as they can and nobody's replacing them. So by default, you're going to have departments that are 20, 30% smaller. Budgets will be cut. Money will be allocated elsewhere. So they get the defunding a whole quasi way. It's a backdoor effort. Do you, no, think, there's this? Yeah. you think there's a bigger picture nationwide? I mean, what you're saying is, is nationwide and it is nationwide. So why is this happening across the country to get the police out of the way? Is there a, a move here to uh, change America, or is there a move to create more socialism? Um, I, I don't know how else you could explain it, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I, I don't know who's the puppet master pulling the strings, uh, but it certainly takes a lot of deep pockets to make that happen. And and I, I got to think, 
that some of them are stupidly that naive to think that that's a more utopia society that they're creating step by step until you get there. Um, because today they come for you, tomorrow they're going to come for somebody else. And that somebody else will be the puppet master eventually. Well, what do you know, think? They, have, they have the press and they have big tech, which big tech is so, so powerful. You know, you see Twitter just totally silencing people. Totally, you know, they just, if you have a conservative voice, they don't let you speak. Ben Shapiro the other day highlighted a case where NBC covered the shooting of the girl, the 16-year-old the with the knife that was stabbing the other girl. They didn't even mention the knife. They just mentioned the cop shot her. It was so pathetic. It was like a junior high school news station reporting this, and they did it on purpose, you know? Well, it would be nice if that girl and her mother would get in front of a camera and say, thank you, officer, for saving my life. That'd well, be nice. The girl's mother, I mean, that girl was in foster care, and the girl's mother um, had really nothing to do with her. She only came out of the woodworks after this has happened. I mean, she put her in foster care. She couldn't control her. There were, I believe, seven to nine 911 calls to that house. And, you know, the final one, obviously, was when um, the girl pulled a knife, and now we blame the police for shooting the 911 victim who was in the process of trying to kill an individual with a knife. The next day, the very next day in Cincinnati, a very similar incident happened where the girl actually killed the other girl with a knife and the police weren't there. Do you think that girl's mom wished that a police officer showed up? I mean, this is what occurred. He saved someone from dying and unfortunately had to take the life of the person that was in the process of killing a woman, and he's the bad guy. And if he was two seconds later, they would have been, why didn't he shoot her? Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, the important thing with that case, though, too, is they should have really did an in-depth interview of both of those victims before, you know, like an Al Sharpton or some, you know, sleazy lawyer got to them and said, hey, there's money in this, you know, because he could have shot you, you know. Does a terrible job of getting in front of these incidents. We should be in front of the cameras, exposing the truth about the criminal backgrounds, what occurred, how it happened, showing the weapons. But we don't have the chiefs and the commissioners who have the courage to stand in front of a camera in fear that they will be called a racist or in fear that they're going against the policies of their mayors. And, and that's one of the biggest problems cops are facing, too. Listen, we, we, we had a, a first deputy, which is our number two ranking officer in the department last year during the riots. You know, everybody kind of saw, I'm sure you did the Bobby Rush thing where the officers were sitting in his office drinking coffee and eating popcorn during the riots uh, because the strip mall where his office was located, it was already looted for that much for that part. When they got there, there was really nobody left, but they still were assigned to secure that area. So middle of the night. They met half of them sit down, half of them were outside. Uh, but the press conference, when that video came out, our first deputy stood at a podium and literally lambasted the police as he was so embarrassed and disgusted by their behavior while he was standing shoulder to shoulder with some commander during the riots being attacked while they're sitting on their asses eating popcorn and drinking coffee, which was a 100% fabricated lie. He was talking about an incident that happened the day before. Um, it was disgusting. He pissed away a great career at that point. He was very respected. All he had to do 
was take his badge off, put it on the podium, and say, this shit show behind me is exactly why I'm leaving the department effective immediately, because they're going after hardworking policemen who are put in a no-win situation. But bosses just refuse to step up and do that because they're selfish. They're looking out for their own careers, their own paychecks, and their own pensions. And their next job. We experienced yes, that yes. here with former Commissioner Jimmy O'Neill. Uh, you know, he was t- t- noted as the cop's cop. And in the end, he, he fired a police officer after there was a, a deal in place to let him keep his job. Uh, and he bowed to the mayor. And it was a, a pretty big argument from what I understand when this was occurring. But, you know, once again, Ballers Jimmy decided to take the guy's job and go on to get his big job with Visa or MasterCard. It's always about where they're going to next. Right. That's what it is. It's about what's in it for them. But these chiefs and these commissioners, they forget that they wear the same patch that we do. They forget that they were in the same sector cars that we do. And then all of a sudden they get to sit up in a, a you know, the puzzle palace and judge and question what cops are doing in the street in a moment's notice. And they did the job themselves. But politics is now their governor and helps them to make their decisions. And well, that's the problem we deal with, too. You know, I was in use of force negotiations a couple of weeks ago, and I had a chief sitting in on there. And I know he didn't like it. It's someone I personally known for several years now. He actually was one of my bosses a couple of years ago. And I said, I think maybe you've been off the street a little too long. I don't think you remember what it's really like out there for the people in the blue shirts. Um, it's very different than from where you're sitting. I can assure you of that. And I know he took exception to it because I – embarrass them so to speak in front of the whole room but it's just the sad truth they just have no idea that there's some of them are so far detached from reality and and there's other ones i mean i I don't know how new york's process works but we had a major issue with merit promotions for sergeant you know for years 20 percent of all promotions were allowed to be a phone call um and you can imagine the ranks that that produced whether it was sergeants, lieutenants, or exempt ranks of people who should have never been qualified for any promotion, but because of who they knew, they got a promotion and that allowed them to be then named commanders, chiefs, deputies, uh, and they're running the department into the ground. Our promotions are like that from captain above, deputy inspector, it starts out for appointments, and that's where they all start selling each other out. And, you know, as critical as I can be for the, the majority of the ballish chiefs that are up there doing it, there are some who are really trying to do the job and really uh, trying to look out for the cops and haven't forgotten where they come from. But they become the minority in the majority of who's in charge. And in the end, um, we, we are a circle with people who just refuse to do what's right and become selfish, as you described earlier, for their own careers. And, and that's Sad because the cop industry is out there as we're speaking right now. Your cops are out protecting the city of Chicago. Our cops are out protecting the city of New York, and they are expendable to all the people that work above us. And that's pretty sad. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's weird because one of the most, uh, at least, principled superintendents that we've had in recent history was the interim superintendent Charlie Beck. When he was here for that handful of months, he stopped merit promotions. He pretty much definitely tried to restructure the department in a positive light. And I know a lot of people say Charlie Beck's, you know, a, a camera hound and all of that stuff. I, I could really give a damn less, but he definitely seemed to have a very outspoken way about him that this was the way it was going to be. And he at least knew where you stood with him. It wasn't make it up as you kind of go along. Um, but unfortunately he was just an interim. 
Uh, you had Gary McCarthy, former NYPD. And take him back, please. <laughs> the incident where he sat on that tape for a year, um, you know, the shooting uh, was... He didn't, he didn't see it. What do you mean? He didn't sit on it? Yeah, but, Rob didn't see it either. You know, not knowing is just as guilty as knowing, and you're supposed to see it. So you either did see it and did nothing, or you didn't see it and you should have seen it. So that's not really an excuse, but um, I really found that incredible that a year went by, and you actually think that you could just not show that. But no one talks about that. See, we have inspectors, we have chiefs. Um, you know, they, they threaten to kill cops and they get promoted. I mean, it, it's it's insanity when this happens. But on the lower levels of the ranks, uh, they get suspended. And in some cases, they get arrested. It, it's it's unthinkable, but it's been happening. Um, Bill, I know we're over the hour. And, John, I, I, I really want to thank you. I want to bring you back. I know there's a lot happening in Chicago. Uh, this has been very enlightening to a lot of our viewers. But I'm going to give Bill the last word right now because he's always got the best life. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just I just wonder how all of these horrendous suggestions that these politicians are making, for example, defunding the police and giving the money to social workers, violence interrupters, they call them, paying gangs not to uh, kill each other. I mean, where did these ideas come from? And, and what evidence do they have? Because they're always talking about science. What evidence do they have that any of that shit can work? Because guess what? It does. It will not work. And we're going to be back here. Chicago's going to double or triple their violence. And New York City is going to start having violence in the, like the 80s, the 2,000 homicides a year. And that's troubling to me and troubling the people that are citizens of the city. And, you know, hopefully they'll vote these morons out that, that, that are doing this stuff. Shouldn't be happening, John. Go ahead. If, if if we if we don't change the course here, at least we are going to break a thousand homicides this year. And the only reason we didn't break it last year is couplefold. We have much better medical technology now. Shot spotter technology is absolutely amazing. It allows officers to know exactly where shots are fired and get to scenes quicker, and thus get medical attention to people quicker. Quality medical care that's better than ever before that has saved countless lives so we easily have been over a thousand deaths last year and we're certainly on pace to break that shatter that number this year regrettably hopefully it doesn't happen but uh if i were a betting man i think it's going to happen the way things are going i think our homicides are going to go through the roof once again thanks for coming on all the best to all of your cops in chicago uh hopefully everybody stays safe we're going to talk again i got a couple of things i want to go through with you and uh, talk about. We'll do that offline. And Bill, thank, thanks for participating. Everyone watching, have All a great right. Nice to meet you. <laughs> thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to the next time. Everybody be safe. Thank Keep you. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. We will. Absolutely. Have a good night. Peace. Bye.